All right. Good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to Acts 21. We'll keep going through the book of Acts here. I hope you guys are well. At this point, I don't know if it's hotter inside or outside. So, <laughs> uh, the windows are open, but I, I don't know if that's good or bad. We'll find out. So, in Acts chapter 21, just by review, last week we finished up Acts chapter 20, and uh, we just called it a, a tale of two courses. And because Paul, he makes a statement there that he's, he's finishing his course. He's going to be faithful to his course. And, and the idea, it can mean to run a race. It can just be a pathway. And the fact that the, the, we live in a world where there's two major courses. There's the way the world is going. And we talk about that from Ephesians chapter 2. The Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And it says that we all walked by the, by, uh, the spirit of the sons of disobedience. The idea, again, if, if you don't recall with us, that word spirit, pretty much all the way through the New Testament in the Greek is always pneuma, which is where we get our word pneumatic or pneumatic tools, air-driven tools. Uh, the word spirit just means breath or, or wind. And so in Ephesians 2, there's kind of a play on words. The idea is that Satan, that there's a, there's a wind that's being blown upon the earth, that Satan is the power of that wind, the director of that wind, and that when we were, uh, especially when we were unbelievers, every unbeliever is being blown by that power. So we don't have to be surprised when unbelievers act, uh, act the way they do. We don't have, don't have to be surprised about priorities or anything like that. It's just, that is the way that the world is being moved. But then we have another course, and it's, it's the course of that world, this world. We have another course, and it's the course that God has laid out for us. And again, that was all given in the context of how do we find uh, fellowship? How do we be involved? Because Paul's course, although with suffering and so forth, that brought him into the center of God's will, uh, which ultimately was the best place for him to be. And we kind of see some similar things with, uh, with that today uh, as we jump into Acts 21. Uh, really, today, going to talk a lot about uh, fellowship uh, a tad today and then suffering again. So I just call it fellowship and suffering, uh, living my best life. Uh, because that's the reality of the gospel, and, and we'll see how that works out. And we have it illustrated just so fantastically uh, for us in, in Paul's life here in Acts 21. So if you don't mind, we're going to read about uh, 14, 15 verses here, and then we'll jump into it in Acts 21. It says, And when we had parted them uh, and set sail, those remember those are all the, the elders, they were in Miletus, and these are the elders that he called to himself from Ephesus. And so they had prayed together, and then they leave. So that's, that's where we pick up in 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad uh, and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed for, to Syria and landed in Tyre, for the ship was uh, to unload its cargo. And having there for seven, excuse me, and we stayed there for seven days, and th through the Spirit they were telling, sorry, man, I'm getting crazy here. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and then went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived 
uh, at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed uh, with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when, he heard, excuse me, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased in saying, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we would lodge." And this is, it covers a lot, obviously. This is a kind of a, a very busy piece of scripture where it's we did this and we did this and we did this and we did this. And, and we'll look at the, autom- uh, the itemization uh, of it a little bit. And then we'll look at some of the, uh, the things that are put forward. It's interesting that you might have noticed that in, in verse 4 and other places where it says that, that there were people that by the Spirit were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But then Paul says, I have to go to Jerusalem. So we're going to work through that. How does that work? There's kind of a, a debate in Christianity. Was Paul going against the Spirit or was he moving with the Spirit? You know, what was happening there? Why was it happening? Why were people saying those things? And then last, we'll just look at this simple idea about suffering and how Paul is pressing into this suffering and what would cause a person to do that. In the first couple of verses, though, you have three or four cities that are mentioned, and we're going to look at that really quick. It says that when they set sail, so this is from Miletus, we came uh, by a straight course to Coes, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Now, one little detail, you'll notice that we're back to we, right? So Luke is now with him. Throughout the whole journey, Paul's had different people that are with him, and we'll talk about that too, kind of in the vein of fellowship. But here, Luke is back with them, and he's now sailing with them, and he's traveling with them. Remember, way back in chapter 14, uh, I believe it's 14, Luke joins up with them. Then he's kind of gone for a little bit. Now he's back, and we're back to the we, and so Luke is back with him. We have a map, if we could put that up, uh, so we can kind of get an idea of what's happening here, and the official pointer. So it's, it's like we're real Christians or something. So... This is where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. Maybe he, remember, he came from like over here somewhere. So he's, he's back. He, they're in Miletus. They take a straight course to Coes. They go to Rhodes. They go to Patera. And then notice that it, notes, it says that we passed Cyprus on the left. So that tells us that he didn't go over here. He went down here to Tyre. Now the Ptolemaeus, excuse me, that's like right here, and then he gets down into Caesarea and then into Jerusalem, which is inland. So I wanted to kind of point that out so you can know uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea right here, so you could have some sort of idea. Now, when it says they went to Phoenicia, that's this whole area. Phoenicia is more like uh, a country or an area and not just a city, if that makes sense. So that's where they're going. That's what they do. These were all one-day journeys, as it says. They stayed uh, for... uh, uh, seven days in one location, and then they make the big journey across the Mediterranean like so. And then they, they travel about one day at a time down till they get to Jerusalem. 
So if that makes sense for you, so you can know. But what I want to point out here in these is it, is it says they're making their journey. You'll note, it says that uh, when they come into the side of Cyprus, they leave it on the left, they come to Syria to Tyre, they, go, uh, they take a ship, it unloads its cargo. So when they get to Tyre, they stop and they seek out the disciples. It says in having, uh, verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So kind of a dual point here. The first part of this is that every single place that Paul goes, he seeks out the disciples. They look for them. They don't just kind of hide away somewhere. Now, it, the argument could be made with Paul's not traveling. He doesn't have a lot of money. He needs a place to stay, and so he stays with them. But the important part is, and we don't want to overlook this, is that from the inception of the church, way back in the beginning of Acts, where you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Something that's very foundational to the church, whether it was home church meetings or when they were meeting in, in Solomon's portico, they were constantly together. You know, I, I've talked about this before. There's a fantastic um, uh, documentary on Netflix. Uh, I, the name eludes me. I tried to find it. It's, it's something to the, it's a social experiment or something like that. Anyway, The Social Dilemma. One of the things in The Social Dilemma, if you have time, you have Netflix, I encourage you to watch it. It's all these bigwigs, people from Twitter, people from Facebook, not, not just kind of bottom floor people, but the people that are creators, content creators, people, CEOs. These are the people uh, uh, from these huge social media companies. And one of the things that they're talking about is the fact that social media is destroying society. The people that created it. These aren't Christians. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about any of that. They're just content creators, the people that invented these social media machines. They're, and their, their testimony is, it's destroying our life, essentially. One of the things they point to is that in 2011 is where Facebook and uh, uh, I think a couple others, they went to the, a mobile device where it went from just being on the computer to being able to have it on a phone, Okay. So when that happened in 2011, and ever since then, depression in, in uh, something crazy like, like 10-year-old girls to 16-year-old girls went up by like 80%. Boys the same. Suicide rates higher and higher. And so these are the creators of these things that are talking about these statistics. These aren't like fringe groups that are raging against Facebook. And their point is that the human mind was never designed to take in all the input from everywhere around the world. It used to be that you would go to school and you'd kind of maybe worry about your clothes or something like that in front of a few friends. Now it's the entire world that people are constantly concerned with. Young girls growing up constantly concerned with their bodies and how they look and their clothes and all these things. So you have this radical destruction of kind of social fabric that's occurring. And it's interesting because the more that these programs supposedly unite us and connect us, the more isolated we feel, especially if we're very into social media. We, we, we tend to forget that everybody's posting their best life, right? Nobody takes a selfie. The wife and I arguing, right? Nobody takes that selfie. Nobody takes the selfie like, the kid's calling me a jerk. No one takes that selfie. No one takes a selfie of haven't done laundry in two weeks, don't care. No one takes that selfie. No one does. 
Everyone takes their best, their best life selfies. Here we are in vacation. Here we are the happy family. Here we are at the perfect church. Here we are the best of everything. And as we, we know, if we stop and think about it, that we all individually do that. But when we're ingesting it, all we're thinking is that's the life that they have. That's the life they live. And it isn't because all humans, your first grade teacher was right, you're unique, but all humans are the same in a lot of ways. We react the same way. We think the same way. It's, it's incredible how things work. So one of the things that's so important and has been important from the beginning of Christianity is fellowship. Seeking one another out. Speaking to one another. And notice in this fellowship, they don't always agree with Paul, do they? They're coming along and they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem, whatever you do. The Spirit is speaking to them. Don't go to Jerusalem. He's saying, no, the Spirit is speaking to me. i got to go to Jerusalem. But they're still together. It's, it's noteworthy that in this path of suffering that Paul is enduring and he's going through, one, he's traveling with people, but two, he's seeking these people out. Now, again, preaching to the choir, you guys are here. Like, you know, I'm not probably telling you anything new. But it's so important that we invest in one another in our walk with Jesus Christ and we don't become isolated. One of the things I've noticed, uh, I got saved when I was 16. And uh, I guess, obviously, I was single then, didn't have any kids then. And I used to do all sorts of stuff. I used to go out every night. I had Christian roommates and we would just go, you know, uh, two for one steak night and, and all that kind of stuff. And we used to just do that. And then I got married, and we, still, we had no kids. And so we went places, and we did stuff, and we were a lot younger then. And, you know, and, then, and then we had kids. And understandably, things change when you have kids because you stop sleeping for a while. You just, you just kind of zombie to, to work and zombie here and zombie there and try to steal your naps and whatever. But you, you start kind of retracting a little bit. And what I've noticed for my own self is it becomes easier and easier for me to retract and not put effort out to have social interaction. When in the reality is, it's kind of one of those tricky things where we, we think if we reserve ourselves from social, uh, social interaction, that it will preserve ourselves. You ever, you ever had that thought? Where you think, that's ah, too much of a pain to go out, or I don't want to have that conversation. And there's time for that. I'm not trying to make a, a rule that says you must always go spend time with people. That's not the point. The point is that when we invest in effort in the midst of our suffering, instead of retracting, we actually find the encouragement and the fulfillment that we're looking for. You ever wonder, what's the opposite of loneliness? Because unlonely is not a word. You can't be unlonely. You can be lonely, but you can't be unlonely. See, loneliness has pain. Because being alone is not a bad thing. Right? We, don't, we don't criticize being alone, Be, but being lonely, there's a, there's a certain uh, association with that, concept with that, and it's to be in pain, it's to be in anguish, it's to be isolated. And so this, whether it's social media or whatever it might be, we can retract and feel isolated. And sometimes when you're suffering, especially in a day and age where we have social media, we have just any entertainment you want any time you want, any place you want. It's so easy to think to ourselves, I will be happier if I simply engage in being entertained. Essentially, self-medicate. 
rather than thinking, if I invest, if I move out of my comfort zone, I can actually find the completion. Because the opposite of lonely is, would be joyful and satisfied, right? Loneliness is empty and pain. And the opposite of that would be joy and satisfaction. So when I, in, when I step out of my own self and I allow people to invest in me and I invest in them, when I stop somewhere for seven days and I seek out the disciples rather than retracting to my own life, we'll find is that's the full life. Again, no one's ever saying there's not time to be alone or to reflect. No one's ever saying that we can't have times in our life because of sickness, especially where we're at now, where we find ourselves in that position. But that's not the position we're supposed to stay in. And I think it's a great example here where Paul, everywhere he's going, he has these modes where he just says, okay, let's find the disciples. It's one day. We got one day here in, in Coos or, uh, or wherever it is. Let's, let's find the disciples. Invest, invest. And it's, it ends up being this incredible life. The second part, portion of verse 4 is this. It says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when we get down to, we finish what we read, he says there, then Paul answered, verse 13, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now you have Agabus who shows up and takes his belt. I don't know, perhaps this is a Middle Eastern tradition. I guess it would be a little bit weird if it happened in the U.S. But uh, basically this guy Agabus shows up and he grabs Paul's belt and pulls it off him little invasion of personal space. And he says, and then he takes the belt and he wraps it around his hands. I don't know how you do that, but he does it. Uh, and then he says, hey, this is what's going to happen to the guy who wears this belt. That he's going to be bound in Jerusalem, that the Jews will bind him in Jerusalem, and he'll be delivered to Rome, to the Gentiles. So he has this, it's a prophecy. It's this verified prophecy. And we know, because if we were to read the whole book of Acts, that that's exactly what happens to him. So on the one hand, you have all these different people, including Luke. Notice he says, we were telling him not to go. In fact, I made a list because it's, again, we're reading a few verses and we don't always get who is there and what's going on. But I made a list here. So these are all the people that are actually traveling with Paul since Miletus. So you have, oh, I better get the glasses out. I still forget sometimes. So you have Aristarchus. He was a church leader. Uh, you have Gaius, he's from Derby, so way in a different location. You have Luke, you have uh, uh, Pyrrhus, uh, he's the father of Sopater, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> you have um, uh, uh, Sopater himself, Segundus, Trophimus, Tychicus, and Timothy. Right, so Timothy's been with him for a while. So these are all the people that are traveling with Luke from Miletus. They're all there. They're all encouraging. And so Luke is saying, we, we were all telling Paul, don't do it. So who's right? Is Paul right? Was he supposed to go to Jerusalem? He does end up witnessing to Festus and all these different people all the way up to Nero. We know. He, he, he's, he got to speak with Nero personally. So was he right in doing that? Or were the disciples right? And he was supposed to not go that direction. You know, ultimately, we don't know. We do know that it appears that he probably was supposed to go. And I, I wrote down three different verses. In Acts uh, 20, 22, and in 21, 14, uh, Paul declares it's his will. It's God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. 
Also, uh, in chapter 23, verse 11, Paul receives comfort from the Lord. And the Lord says, don't, and he's, when he's in Jerusalem, he says, don't worry. You will also, I'm going to keep you safe. You will also go and witness about me in Rome. And then lastly, in 23.1, Paul says, he makes a declaration to, uh, a public de- uh, declaration. And he says, I've lived in good conscience to this day. So most likely what's happening, Paul truly is supposed to go to Jerusalem and do these things. You have the Lord comforting him, encouraging him, promising him he's going to take him to Rome. It seems that Paul is indeed living out the life that God and and the course that God has for him. So what does it mean that they were speaking to him by the Spirit or through the Spirit? Most likely the idea is that they knew that that the Spirit was speaking to them personally but because the outcome of what the Spirit was telling them that was going to happen to Paul, that they were saying, Paul, don't do it. Does that make sense? In a care for Paul, here's Paul saying, I'm going to suffer. Remember in, uh, in the previous chapter, he says, all I know is the Spirit tells me in every city I go to that what awaits me is jail and bondage. He says, I know that's where I'm going. So what's probably happening here is that the the disciples are also figuring this out through the Holy Spirit, through Paul, however it's happening. And in their care for him, they're saying, no, don't do that. Don't go suffer. Don't let that happen to yourself. You, you You don't have to have a life like that. Which is interesting because it creates a, a, a dynamic that's, I think, a lot oftentimes normal. And we can feel the same way sometimes with our brethren where God's called us to something. And I'm not talking about, and I want to be careful here, but sometimes God's will is kind of used, it's like the ace in the hole. If you're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, uh, and again, in like a gray area, sometimes it's, it's unavoidable. You can't say, well, you know, God's called me to smoke a bunch of meth and then, you know, whatever. You're like, well, I don't think he has because he's not called us to be drunken. He's not called us to those things. But sometimes we say we can, we can use certain terminology because we've been around long enough and we just say, well, this is, this is God's will for my life. And what can somebody say to that? Like, oh, okay, I, I can't point to something that says it's not, but it definitely doesn't seem to be wise. So I don't, we're not talking about that kind of it's God's will. But sometimes when God is really calling us to something that's difficult in our lives, somebody might come along and say, why are you doing that? You're suffering. You don't have to suffer. It doesn't have to be this way. You don't, you don't have to go that way. So let's just be careful. When we're encouraging our brethren and what they're going through, let's actually encourage them in what they're going through. If we don't know what they should do, we should probably not tell them what they should do. Does that make sense? If someone says, hey, I'm, I'm going through this suffering, and I think this is what God has for me, or I'm doing this, we can go, hey, that's cool. I'm going to pray for you. We don't have to list a bunch of reasons. Paul even, he, he makes this, uh, we don't have to list a bunch of reasons of why it's, it's uh, not good. Listen to what, uh, what Paul says here. He says, verse 13, and Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? He loved these guys. He cared for them. They care for him. And he makes this statement. He says, you're breaking my heart right now. You're making it so much harder for me to move forward and go what needs to be done. But it's cool. you got to love their response. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Amen. We stopped. We left him alone. 
We didn't bother him about it anymore. Instead, it says, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So here's this guy. Here's Paul. He's going through a difficult time. He's saying, this is the way that God has for me to go. I have to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit is witnessing to me in every city. This is the will of God for me. And you can say, amen. The will of the Lord be done. And we can just let people go the way that God has called them to go and not try to figure it out all for ourselves. Secondly, this idea of suffering. God is leading Paul into suffering. You ever think about that? He's telling Paul. In fact, when Paul got saved, when you got saved, you probably got some sort of tract in a church invite, right? When I got saved, it was like, here's the gospel. We're like, I need that. We heard about the fact that Jesus Christ paid for our sins through his own blood, that he took the full payment for the judgment we deserve and then rose again from the dead to show his power over death and sin. And we said, I need the forgiveness that Jesus bought me. I need to be forgiven of my sins. And we accepted that. And then someone probably rejoiced with us, like, this is so great. Here, let me give you, here's our church time so we can go to church or we can find you a good church, but it's important for you to get in fellowship. And then however it went. And then we kind of had this. When Paul got saved, he gets knocked to the ground. And then later on, uh, when Jesus is talking to uh, the, oh, I just slipped my, another aim. A name. Anyway, Ananias? No, that's Sapphira. Anyway, when the guy who's supposed to go talk to Paul, he goes to talk to him, the Lord says, I must show Paul everything he is to suffer for my name. So from the very beginning, Paul is told, you're going to suffer a lot. That's like the fine print. We don't have any tracks that say that, right? We don't hand out invites like, hey, come to the church. Jesus loves you. Get saved. And then come suffering. All right, cool. Here you go. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. You're welcome. But it's the path, it's the course we've all been given. Check out in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1. Paul suffered. Remember Jesus there in, in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. It says the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. The Spirit led Christ to suffering. The Spirit led Paul to suffering. All the 12. I have a little booklet I got. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Some of it's tradition. It's historical tradition. And some of it's verifiable. But how every single one of the 12 die. It's radical. They're all martyred. Every one of them. Thomas, Bartholomew. They're all martyred. And they were willing to go to that death for what they had seen and what Christ had done in their life. All that to say is, Every single one of us are going to suffer. It says, only let your manner, this is verse 27, uh, sorry, Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we'll stop there for a moment. How does my manner of life even become worthy to the gospel? What does that mean? Does that mean always do the right thing? Does that mean never sin? Is that what it is to be worthy of the gospel? How does one be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It seems like that's a pretty uh, difficult thing to be worthy of. But think of it this way. The word worthy, it's just, it's granting worth. It's worthily, it can be pronounced or said. To, to live in a way that both gives worth 
to the gospel. In other words, my life is lived in a way where I say, yeah, the gospel is worth something. But also to live in a way where I say my life is, is worth something in the gospel. And in other words, not only do I give the gospel worth, but I'm living in a way that I'm worth something for God's kingdom. Not intrinsic worth, God so loved the world, but the idea that my life can be used for his kingdom. I'm living in a way that my life has worth for God's kingdom work. Not worth to God, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us, Christ died for us. So we're not saying that we gain our worth through works or through lifestyle. We're just saying that as Christians, we're now called to live as if the gospel has worth to us and then our life is worth, is, is making a difference in the kingdom, if that makes sense. So Paul says, he's writing to the Philippians and he's encouraging them, let your life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's that idea of fellowship again. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not the faith of peripheral issues, not the faith of the gifts of the Spirit, not the faith of when the rapture is, not the faith of whether it should be drums or not in the worship, none of that. The faith of the gospel. Striving for the faith of the gospel. We don't need to strive together for peripheral issues. It doesn't, those things are, they're, they're cool to think about. We don't have to strive together to make sure that everybody knows who the Nephilim are. We don't have to strive together so that we can all point to all the evidence of the flood. That's, those things are fine. But we're to be striving together for the gospel, not a candidate, not anything of this world. The gospel, the free gift of salvation through the blood of Christ. He says, strive together for that. Keep going with that. And then he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. So he says God has given us this dynamic that as we move away from fear, we don't have to fear the world. We don't have to fear the Oval Office. We don't have to fear any of that. We have no fear of it. The world will do what the world will do. You have Satan and the wind of this world and the course of this world and it will run its course and we will not stop that. What we will do, however, is not fear it and live in a way where we're giving the gospel. You want to shut bars down? You want, you want to minimize abortions? Spread the gospel. Spread the love of Christ. I'm not saying don't vote your conscience. You should do that. That's, that's great. But the gospel saves life. The gospel changes communities. The gospel does. And Paul says, keep sharing the gospel. Don't be afraid what people are going to do. We know the Bible will be illegal here soon. That's not weird. It will be. And that's fine. We don't have to fear that. We can fight it, and, that's, and there will be lawsuits and all that. And that's fine. But we're here with the gospel. It's more powerful than a lawsuit. It's more powerful than free speech. The gospel spread in the old world where there was no free speech. You couldn't be a Christian because it was illegal. And yet it exploded. The gospel, the true good news of Jesus Christ, paying for sin and rising from the dead, that delivers the most pious idolater or the most debased human being. It saves them all. It saves us. 
Paul says, strive for the gospel. And he says, when you do this, it's going to be evidence of condemnation to your adversaries. This is not so we can go, yeah, stupid adversaries, be condemned. God loves those guys. Anybody who opposes the gospel, God loves them, just like he did us when we opposed the gospel. He loves every single human being. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Paul goes on here and he says this. He says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The word granted there, for it has been granted, it's the same, it's a similar word to the word that we have spiritual gifts or the word grace. It's charizomai. And what the idea is that it has been graciously given to you. So it's been graciously given to you. Just imagine the most graceful gift you could ever give, the most graceful person, whoever hands you this gift. It's been gracefully given you by God, not only to believe and to be saved, but to suffer. It's been given to you. Now, are we saying that God has caused all the suffering in the world? No, I don't think we're saying that at all. I think we want to be very careful where we say, sometimes we can be quick to go, oh, that's God's judgment, or that's this, or that's that. You might even recall back to the, the disciples when Jesus walks by a blind man, and they ask him, they say, hey, who was born, or uh, who sinned that this man should be born blind? You guys remember that from the Gospels? They ask Jesus, they say, who sinned that this man should be born blind? Him or his parents? Think about that for a second. The disciples are literally asking Jesus, did this man sin in utero? And that's why he was born blind. And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. He says, this man was born blind so the glory of God could be revealed for it through him. And then he heals him. So this guy could have beef and say, why have you created me this way? Or why have you allowed this to happen? However we want to look at it, it's probably a sermon in itself. But it has been allowed to happen. And Jesus said the reason that this suffering, which could seem unbearable, it could seem unfair, it could seem that is immoral almost. But God says this was allowed to happen so that you could know exactly who I am. Through this man's suffering came a revelation of Jesus' deity. And he heals the blind. And you, you probably know the commentary. We've never seen this done before. We never knew this could happen. I watched a, a YouTube the other day. And by no means am I accusing all police officers of being corrupt, corrupted. So just, I'm not making a political statement. But it was a testimony of a corrupt cop. And he's sitting down with a guy that he put in jail for 10 years. And they're sitting together. And through the wrongful imprisonment of one man and through the brokenness of the other, because the officer also went to prison, they both receive Christ. They receive Christ, they get saved, and then they end up meeting later on in life at like a job skills program. Because one guy gets out of prison for a drug charge that he never committed, and the officer gets out of prison for falsifying reports. And it turns out he had falsified quite a few. 
and they, get, they end up both through their, their turmoil, they get saved, they go to a job fair, and they end up meeting each other at this job fair because obviously he's not an officer anymore, and this guy just got out of prison. And they end up reconciling. Think about that for a second. They reconcile. They're friends now. They do, they fellowship together. They do things together. Can you imagine hanging out with someone who is personally, underhandedly, immorally responsible for getting you 10 years in prison? It's impossible, isn't it? We don't forgive someone if they cut us off in traffic. Somebody tells a rumor about us at church and they're done. You're dead to me. This guy got him in prison for 10 years. And the gospel healed them. They forgave one another. It's crazy how, about, how powerful Christ is. Each had their own suffering. In his testimony, the officer to this day, he's tormented by what he's done. Probably not as tormented as the people that he did it to, but he's tormented. And he'll live with that forever. We all suffer because the world is broken, because we're broken, we all suffer. But it's through this suffering, walking with one another, walking in the course that God has for us, that we find true victory. Recoiling in our suffering will only compound our suffering. Pressing forward in the course that God has for us, in the fellowship, in the tears, is where the suffering is going to bring glory to God. And perhaps someday in heaven, somebody, when the grand, you know, unveiling of what God was doing around the world in all times, when that's unveiled, we'll see why we suffered, probably even better. Whether it's to comfort one another, to give glory to God, to bring humility in our own lives, all the good things that it accomplishes were given suffering. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says it this way. He says, suffering, it brings about endurance or patience. And then patience brings about character. Character is the idea of, it's, it's kind of uh, habitual morality in a sense. Good character is the idea that you continue to do what is right. So in, in Romans 5, Paul says it this way. We thank God for our suffering because through it, it, it generates patience. Now, suffering can generate impatience. If we reject it, if we whine about it, if we complain about it, if we let everybody know that we don't like it or whatever it might be, it can generate sin and bitterness and it can destroy. But when we accept it, when we embrace it, it generates patience. We begin to say, okay, I have this. This relationship, this trouble, this physical ailment, this whatever, I have this. I don't know why I have this. But I know that you say that you can get glory, you can get humility, you can get all sorts of things in my life and for you. So I just want to let that happen, however that can happen. And we move forward, it develops patience because now we have a reason, maybe not a reason of how everything or a full understanding of why everything, all the questions we really want to answer, but we have a reason of why we can be patient. Talked about it last week. So many of us, it's, it's this weird dynamic, and maybe it's always been, but right now in society, it's like the catchphrase is, I can't. I can't do this. And in Christ, that, that's not true. 
We can go through suffering. And when we have a reason and understanding, God's going to get glory from this. I'm going to be humbled by this. There'll be a reward in heaven for this. All of a sudden, I have a reason to remain patient. I don't have to say I can't. I don't have to make excuses. I don't have to be angry. I just say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't know how or why or any of the details that you're going to get something here. And when that happens, it develops the patience and the character. All of a sudden, habitually, we begin to trust by instinct, not just by intellectual ascension and decision, but by instinct, we begin to trust Jesus with all of our lives. And he can do more and more in our life. It's amazing the progression that goes on there, but the, the progression that suffering in fellowship reaps for us. So don't grow weary in well-doing, knowing that if you do not faint, you'll reap. It's a biblical promise. If you're going through hard times, you will reap a spiritual fruit if you let God do it. There's no downside to it. You know it may be difficult in this life. And if you're suffering, if you're hurting, we would love to pray with you or talk to you or help you if we can. Feel free to come up after the service and, and we'll, we'll dialogue about it. We'll pray for you. You notice that like in at least two or three times throughout the last couple of chapters, what, what happens? Paul says, hey, I have to go to Jerusalem. It's the way it has to be. They're like, no, bro, don't go. He's like, no, I got to. That's what I have to do. Please don't break my heart. Each time, what do they do? They get on their knees and they pray together. They say, God bless you. May God's will be done in your life. And they let that people go. We would love to. We don't have to get on our knees because you might feel weird about that. But we can definitely pray together and ask the Lord to work something great in your life if you'd like that. So uh, we'll go ahead and pray and feel free to come up afterwards. Father, thank you for your word. The example we have of a man who suffered greatly and great things were to come of it. And Lord, I pray, help us to embrace the difficult times in our lives so that we can be patient, develop character, and that the, the, as your word says, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad your love in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts with conviction and encouragement so that we might walk worthily of your calling and of the gospel. Lord, thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you guys.